hearing this? Anybody hear that? How can we possibly have the slightest idea what to expect? Well, we're back. Hold on to your butts. Welcome to the Jurassic Park Podcast. I'm your host, Brad Jost, and we're here to discuss all things Jurassic, including the movies, TV shows, music, toys, and more. In episode 359, we begin part one of my conversation with Mark Vignello, special effects artist who worked on Jurassic Park 3. But most importantly, Mark was in the Pteranodon suit in that film and has some amazing stories to tell over the course of the next two episodes, including... You know, how beautiful the dinosaurs were in Jurassic Park 3, some practical versus CG talk. There was a little bit of world-building discussion on the Jurassic series. We talked some monster movies, getting started on JP3 and how that all worked out. And, of course, the opening night of Jurassic Park and how that changed the course of Mark's life. So it was a really fun episode, and I can't wait for you to hear both parts. And next week... We do have part two of that conversation with Mark discussing some of the stunt work and, and, and more scary stuff that happened on JP3, figuring out those scenes and how did that all work. Uh, and we talked a little bit about if anything from the Lost World lingered over into Jurassic Park 3 and, of course, a whole lot more. So please stick around for this episode today and, of course, next week's finale with Mark Vignello. But of course, while you're listening to this episode, hit us up on Instagram, threads, TikTok, and of course over on YouTube to continue the conversation from this episode. And as always, please check out our weekly live streams over on YouTube discussing all of the latest Jurassic news from around the world, Wednesday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, each and every week. But enough of all that, let's go ahead and dive into my conversation with Mark Vignello, special effects artist and performer on Jurassic Park 3. Big head, no get em. Big head, no brain. Big snake, no rattle. I forever remain. Big head. Well, it's great that they documented it so well. And before Stan passed, he told Matt, his son, just, you know, share everything, just make it cool you know, really share the stuff that we did. And that was, you know, those type of behind the scenes shows, you know, is what I always look forward to, um, you know, whether it's movie magic, you know, it was a little later, but any behind the scenes shows I was rabid for, uh, you know, now it's, you know, behind the scenes means guys on a green stage, but I loved seeing the stuff that shows how things were made and, you know, that there was a practical effects at one time, you know? Yeah. Oh my God. I miss those days so, so much when you got to actually see, like like a full documentary about what went into making a film instead of you know the the usual clip show that we kind of get these days Mm. those are fine but i really really miss actually seeing them making a movie instead of just like some quippy lines behind the scenes i miss those making of days you know that's why i got into the business is i mean because i i love the genre so much and the monsters i it wasn't enough to be a fan like i had to be on the inside Mm. and you know at the beginning of the jurassic park 3 dvd they give like a little 10 minute tour of stan winston studios it's really well done actually shows us you know people making molds and painting and the building of the dinosaurs and stuff it was uh, was pretty cool ah man you know i and i feel like that 
Jurassic Park 3 is is probably one of the most like sought after productions uh, whether it's behind the scenes material, things that you know awesome. that look incredible, yeah. like the animatronics, the everything that went into making this movie like look so good. The blending of the dinosaurs, this the raptors between CG and real life, everything looks so good. I, I agree. Uh, I completely agree, and I, I love the what the raptors in them. Yeah, I think, and I am partial. Those are my favorite raptors. Um, I still love the T-Rex. The Spinosaur was really cool, and it was amazing to see how much the technology advanced from the first film. I mean, it was way faster, way stronger. Like, it was a pretty amazing piece of technology. And then, of course, doing the Pteranodon, doing the new dinosaur, that was, you know, a dream come true for me. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. And I And I feel like, overall, this movie has some of the most, like, standout stuff from... Um, from the whole saga, whether it's the, uh, the velociraptors and, uh, the, the quills on there and those cool colors on the, on the males and then the female raptors with the white, uh, tones on there. And obviously the pteranodon sequence that you mentioned, like, and that you are a part of, like it, that is a standout highlight that everybody absolutely loves. And, um, most importantly for me, <laughs> the, uh, the Spinosaurus is just, one of the most incredible creations that's ever existed, I think. Yeah, let's just say in cinema, because I love how big it is. I love, like, that that thing was massive on set. Like, it looks incredible. Um, the identity of that design and that creature is just so standout that I am so glad that we got it the way that it is versus, you know, how it may look in real life. I just think it looks so standout. A lot of that, you know, look, you know, goes to Crash McCreary, who's the concept artist, who's with Stan's concept artist for years, and then Joey Orozco, who was kind of the lead artist uh, during the sculpting and the paint design. And, you know, I almost feel like on the film, at least what I recall seeing it in the theater for the first time or at the cast and crew screening, I'm like, wow, you really don't see the a beautiful paint job. It looked real muted. And I don't know if that was the film processing or what, or I've 4k or anything but it was a gorgeous paint job and joey is a, a singular artist he's he's incredible yeah look i mean joey and uh crash just absolutely nailed it crash is responsible for just the identity i think the soul of like what dinosaurs look mm -hmm. like in jurassic and and joey really brought them to life and you're right like though the 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 spinosaurus in a lot of the behind the scenes photos and everything just is much more vivid um but still even i i just love what we got in the film itself it's just such an icon and you know we've been getting a lot of cool behind the scenes pictures and some videos and things here and there and we just recently got those um ultimate visual history books for jurassic park i don't know if you've seen those but they cover like a ton of great stuff behind the scenes i saw one i i saw i saw one of those books i think at the academy museum i went there for a screening the other night um to see the exorcist it was a retrospect on dick smith who i was a you know a, a huge fan of and i was mm. a friend of i used to go to his house when he was alive no. back in uh, westchester and they had one of the books there and it was funny because Every once in a while, I'll like comment on some like Jurassic thread and they're like, oh, the Trinidad was all CGI. And I'm like, no, it wasn't. <laughs> like, yes, it was. It said so in this book. And I'm like, the book is wrong. And they're like, oh, yeah, what do you know? I'm like, I was the guy in the suit, dude. You're the guy. Like, yes, I know. I There are shots that are definitely CGI, but I can go through, you can go through the DVD commentary with John Rosengrant and he'll be like, there he is, there he is, there he is. <laughs> 
So in, in the book, it said, you know, a, a guy in a suit didn't work. And I'm like, well, not entirely true. I mean, there were some things we tried that did not work. Like they tried to fly me and that was a Ooh. complete comedy of errors. And <laughs> anything where if it was, you know, the cage crashed on it, it had to be this like crazy, you know, flapping of the arms. There's no way I could do that yeah. in the suit. So to, in that regard, yeah, there, there are some things I couldn't do, but like chasing the people, I, I, if you roll the film, I'll be like, there I am. There I am. That's CGI. There I am. So we did we did get some mileage out of the suit. Oh yeah. And and look, I mean, I said it before, but I think the CG in this movie is just spectacular. And the way that it blends between the the CG and the real mm -hmm. stuff, it's phenomenal. Like to the point where you're like, whoa, your mind is blown at how good those transitions are and everything works super well together. I would agree. And as much as the other films change cinema, like this one really ups the ante a bit. I, I would absolutely agree. There's a scene where the Raptors, like, I, I don't remember exactly, but I remember watching the film going, that's awesome, where it's like <laughs> the CGI Raptor was talking to our puppet or our or the CGI one took a step and, and our puppet growled at it and it stepped <laughs> back. Like, that I thought was really cool. Yeah. And I don't know that they did it exactly like that in any other film where you had a CGI one and a practical one acting quote unquote in the same scene together yeah not like that i mean in the first film there's the the t-rex with the eye and then you see the 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 flashlight and then the 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 uh the practical head goes out of frame and then the cgi one steps into frame i thought that was really well done too because the, the first close-up was the animatronic head but then when that moves frame then it continues with the cgi one walking over to the other thing i thought that was really cool but i don't know that in any of the films there was again a practical working reacting to a cgi one yeah, I mean, look, and, and I think this film not only introduced so many cool dinosaurs and things, it just really helped, like, mm -hmm. the world building, I think, for Jurassic fans. Because, you know, this is the third film. The first one it just created an incredible world. The second one, the second film expanded upon that just a little bit with a new island. And now we're back on that same island, but we're doing new stuff. We're introducing... Yeah new uh, kinds of um, dinosaurs and new facilities. And there's there's like weird lore and stuff that we question. And I don't know how much of this you follow at all, like behind the scenes lore and things about uh -huh. like the history of the islands uh -huh. and all that. But it just creates a very, very cool world. And I think mm -hmm. a, a mysterious world that makes us ask uh, a lot of questions about, you know, what is happening here? What's uh, on engines lists? And I think it's really cool that this film is able to do that for us. It's funny you say that. I mean, again, I think that's what makes any film or anything stand the test of time. If there is an elaborate back, it's well thought out. I remember I was, I worked on alien resurrection. I don't mean to go off on a tangent mm -hmm. and I was in one of the alien suits and I'm sitting there in my, my chair, just wanting to die. I was in miserable agony. So I go to that later. And this guy comes up and he goes, Hey man, like is is like the alien's mouth is that because like on their home planet like there's like food way up high and they have to shoot their tongue to get it and i just looked at him i'm like dude just ask the writers man i'm just trying not to pass out here buddy like i appreciate you but i i can't i don't know i'm just i'm just hired to wear the suit dude yeah <laughs> so i probably should have been nicer but that was but again you know to your point i do love that there is stuff and you know what i think is even funny too i also do some work on the mandalorian tv shows oh. the star wars shows okay that 
the original Star Wars cantina scene, a lot of those masks were just Halloween masks that Rick Baker <laughs> and Doug Beswick, they had lying around. And yeah. now they're like full on aliens with a race and a planet and a history. And I'm like, that was a werewolf mask he made for <laughs> Halloween. And now it's this race of aliens. And I thought that's kind of funny. So I do, I do love that stuff. I, it makes me chuckle, but I do think it's great when people put things and time into it. And I, and I did like, you know, the, um, the embryos. I remember some of the guys sculpting the embryos at stands for that scene when they're going around this like little raptor embryos before the one jumps out at Taylor. Oh yeah. That was pretty neat. Yeah. And that, that sequence is something that, you know, we think about a lot. We talk about th that's what this film does. It gives us so much to discuss and theorize and, um, I think that's one of those sequences with the with the embryos in that lab where, you know, we wonder well, we think about it now, like, did it are we retconning things? Like, did this have something to do with what they're doing now with Jurassic World? Like, were they planning on doing hybrid stuff back into JP three days? Like, is that what was going on in those labs? Mm -hmm. I don't probably not, but like it's fun to kind of retcon things and think about how the past films connect to the new films. I think it just makes it kind of like a richer world if we can kind of piece those gaps together mm -hmm. and think about how things connect in, in maybe ways that they never were meant to. But it's fun, I think, as a fan to think of how these films connect and, and how we can relate to them now, you know? Well, I, I love it because, I mean, that's I started as a fan and Jurassic Park was the last movie I saw in you know my hometown before i packed up and drove across country hoping to make a living making big rubber monsters for movies so it, it holds a special place in my heart um you know that among other reasons i mean when i heard that steven spielberg was turning michael crichton's book into a movie and that ilm and, and stan winston specifically were mm -hmm. making you know, practical dinosaurs i'm like i need to find out everything i could it was very <laughs> hush hush there were no articles there was nothing being done on it. And we went opening that. I can remember it like it was yesterday, June 11th, 1993, at the Poughkeepsie Galleria. Me and friends from college, family members, there's a whole bunch of us just went to go see this movie. And it was awesome. I bought the ticket like a month in advance. I was so excited. <laughs> yeah. You know, we've been reflecting a lot on movies in cinema and 30 years of Jurassic Park and how influential I think that movie was. And not even I think, but just how, how influential it was. And you know, the way it pushed people like you to move on and, and, and move into projects and careers and stuff like that. And and thinking about the way cinema was back then, like you used to be able to buy your ticket for this movie and it would be out for a, like a year or more, however long. And it, it felt like maybe, the, well, maybe that would like, now that I'm thinking about it, like it would alleviate some of the stress I feel like for studios today if there were like, longer theatrical runs because like that i feel like that's a lot of the strain is like there's just too much stuff nothing ends up feeling special when back then everything felt special it was just a great time to witness film you know it was a great time like the late 80s too i remember going to see robocop and lost boys by myself i was like 16 i just nice. got my license and i drove to the theater and i timed it i was such a dork like i, <laughs> I saw lost boys first and I timed it when Lost Boys got out. Uh, RoboCop was getting in, so I just kind of filtered in with that crowd, and just and so it was a great day seeing Lost Boys and RoboCop the same day. It was awesome. So yeah, those were great. Those were great times, man. I yeah. That well, it sounds like you were at the forefront of the whole Barbenheimer deal, you know? No, I don't. Have, I'm too old, and I don't have. No, there's no monsters in either one of them. I'm not gonna go see those. So everybody else did that. I, I did it first. Yeah, look, and you bring up monsters and everything, and I am I am just a self-proclaimed like huge 
fan of Halloween and everything spooky, horror movies, uh, Halloween horror nights, all kinds of great stuff. Like, and this is my time of year, you know, like everything about it is perfect. And, um, yeah, you know, it seems like it was a huge influence on you. So like, what was it all the way back at the beginning that kind of brought you into this, uh, you know, world of pursuing cinema? It, it started back when I was a little kid. My mother died a week after I was born, so I never I never knew her. And my father had to work, and so he and I went to go live with my grandmother, his mother. And he worked to support us, and she raised me. And she used to love the old movies. She, was, she loved old movies. And there was a little book in my house. I don't know where it came from. I, I got a copy of it on Amazon a few years ago. It's called Making a Monster by Alan Ormsby. And in it, the first page was about a guy named Lon Chaney Sr., who was the man of a thousand faces. And I would look at this, and it was a picture of his makeup case with all these faces coming out of it. And I remember asking my grandmother, I'm like, Nanny, what is, what is this? And she goes, oh, that's Lon Chaney. He's the man of a thousand faces. Every film he was in, he looked different. And I went, that doesn't make sense. How does he, how does he look different? And she explained that he was a very accomplished makeup artist and a brilliant actor. And that really kind of started my interest. And then anytime there was an old monster movie, I'm like one of the earliest ones I can remember is Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. And it scared the daylights out of me. And I'm talking, I was like three or four, but I was still riveted. I didn't want to turn away. I wanted to see what was going to happen, seeing a guy turn into a wolf and the guy with a square head. And, and I, I would ask her like, who's that? And she would say, well, that's Boris Karloff. It was actually Glenn Strange in that film. And that's Bela Lugosi who played Dracula. And these are actors. And, and that really started my interest. And I just started reading about monsters. And... And then I thought, you know, well, if, if they're, if it's makeup, I mean, maybe I can make myself look like a monster. So during my formative years, when you're, you know, out playing normal people or playing sports or fixing <laughs> cards or chasing girls, I'm in my basement gluing <laughs> my face, trying to screw it up. So that, that's what really started my, I have an obsessive nature. So it's not enough for me just to read about it. I have to learn it from the inside out. So, you know, I would read things like Lon Chaney, and this is why journalists should be held accountable for the things that they write. I read an article that said for, for one of Lon Chaney's films to make his eye look like it was cataract, he took the skin of a hard-boiled egg and he put it over his eye. Uh. And so I thought, I'm going to try that, which was oh, dumb. I could have blinded myself. <laughs> no, it was a contact lens. He had a glass lens oh. custom made. But So there I am trying to put a skin, and it hurt like hell, oh. but I, wouldn't, I couldn't even get photos, but it worked. <laughs> um, but then I found out later, I literally could have blinded myself because the proteins yeah. and the egg thing could have hurt your eyes or scarred your eyes. But... But anyway, I, I did stuff like that as a kid. I, I read about Frederick March putting cotton up his nose to change the shape of it and, you know, doing things with lighting. And so I tried all of that stuff. I mean, it's a, it's a miracle. I'm not completely disfigured from all the crap I tried <laughs> on myself as a kid. So that, that really started it. And that, and I would draw monsters. And of course there were dinosaurs watching the land of the lost uh, TV series, which I was riveted by King Kong, the 1933 film. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I, I, again, anytime they were on, I would get the TV guide, you know, back, this is how old I am, and, and I'd go through and I would mark when the monster movies were on. And I would try to time my dinner or homework so that I was free to watch those movies. And I just, and that's, that's basically my childhood was just, you know, watching monster movies, drawing dinosaurs, sculpting them out of Play-Doh and trying to screw up my face. <laughs> that, that's really what started it. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's an incredible origin story, and I, I've been on a, a kick. And uh, the other day, I watched um, Renfield, and I went back and uh, watched the original, you know, nineteen thirty one Dracula movie, just because, like, it. Which I'm sorry, I, I missed that. What film in nineteen thirty one? Oh, Dracula. 
Oh yeah, yeah. That was the first one. Oh, Valentine's Day. That was the first one that, I mean, if you take the Lon Chaney films aside, Dracula really started Universal being the monster movie mm. uh, house. And then Frankenstein came out almost a year later. And um, that really just started the ball rolling. We're like, we got something here with these monsters. So Universal was the home of the monsters. And that, um, yeah, the, the, the Dracula film, I mean, I could go off on a tangent and tell you all about that movie. Please. Uh, that scared the crap out of me. <laughs> Again, as a kid watching him and when he says, you know, I never drink wine and, and Dwight Fry cuts his finger and it's bleeding. And I'm, I'm literally just in a ball on the couch and I didn't have a remote. This is got to go up to close to the TV to turn the channel. And I wasn't about to get close to the TV watching Dracula, you know, get closer to, yeah. to, to Renfield. So yeah, those movies had a profound impact on me. And as scared as I was of them, I was still fascinated. I was still drawn to it. And so any time I had, there were like monster puzzles, magazines, anything with monsters on it. I was there. I was all about that. So I was very indiscriminate. Uh, as long as it had a monster. Heck yeah. I mean, look, the monsters are awesome. Did you did you get a chance to see Renfield yet? Because it, re- it relates so much to uh, that 1931 movie. Renfield? Yeah, yeah. Yes, I, I had a blast doing it. I actually worked with that director oh. on the Tomorrow War, Chris McKay, and I, I thought the Nicholases crushed it. I, <laughs> I just had a blast just eating the popcorn, enjoying the movie. I mean, I yeah. again, I thought Nicholas Cage... Uh, was fantastic so and I thought, this is what universal needs to do with their monsters because they you know they're kind of stumbling with their dark universe or they're trying to make them superheroes <laughs> or something but i'm like i i really enjoyed it and i thought that uh even some of the the uh, plot points you know I, I sent an email to mckay and i was like hey man this was great and i said you may have just changed some of the lore of vampires like <laughs> single-handedly with the stuff you put in this film it's like oh thanks man so i i had a blast with it there's not a lot of monster movies that i don't enjoy even the bad ones quote unquote so yeah you tell me did you see this monster movie i saw it i'm like yeah i probably enjoyed it <laughs> but i like i like Renfield a lot yeah it was so good so good and they did such a phenomenal job just blending the 1931 movie with this new movie i was just like blown away by how cool it was and i didn't expect that from it well they took their shots they took i mean i know pretty much every frame of that film and they matched it pretty damn closely yeah i was very impressed with what they did so again you know my hat's off to chris mckay yeah absolutely it was so much fun to watch but uh but yeah let's bring it to 1993 now and we're talking jurassic where uh you know it's something that brought you out into hollywood to want to pursue a career in in the film industry so what is that one thing from the movie that made you decide you wanted to be a part of this the t-rex sequence the t the t-rex sequence i was that sequence to me i I just thought this is this is spielberg at his best and uh i I stood up at the end of the film and i declared to all my friends i'm going to work on the sequel now mind you i'm like 22 never worked on a Hollywood, never worked on anything outside of a, a college student film. I had a better chance of being abducted by space aliens than working on any film in Hollywood, let alone, you know, the unannounced sequel of what was going to be the biggest film of that year. But that was me back then. I'm just like, this is what I'm going to do. Failure is not an option. I'm, I'm going to do, I'm going to find a way to do this. And I was actually, I actually interviewed uh, to work on the lost world, but I was currently working on alien resurrection and it would meant I would have had to quit that job early, which is, kind of frowned upon in my industry at least it was back then sure and i'm like i can't do that and i, and I was going to dress up as an alien and chase Sigourney weaver around set and i'm like i gotta do that but i thought you know what i you know i'm gonna check this off on my bucket list saying yes i i almost i chose not to work on the sequel so but i still did my goal so then cut to i think it's like 1999 
I was hired, 98, 99, in that neighborhood. I was hired to work on Austin Powers 2, The Spy Who Shagged Me at Stan Winston Studios. And I thought, I get to work for Stan Winston. I mean, that's that was a dream come true. Stan was an idol of mine. Stan Winston, Rick Baker, Dick Smith, Rob Bertin. And I did a few films there. We did Galaxy Quest. I don't remember exactly the order. End of Days. Um, like I said, Austin Powers 2. I did a little work on The Sixth Sense. Didn't know what it was. I'm in the room, and they bring these molds into me, and they're like, Hey, run these appliances out of gelatin. We got to ship them off to Philadelphia. I'm like, for what? They're like, some Bruce Willis film we're doing. I'm like, all right. There's like some slashed wrists and a blown out back of the head. I ran the pieces out of gelatin, packed them up, sent them off. Never thought about it again until a year later. I'm in the theater and I'm watching the movie. I'm like, hey, I made that. So that was kind of a nice surprise. I didn't get credit on the film, but it was like, again, you don't know what you're working on when you're working on it. It's like, you know, worked on Stranger Things season one. You didn't know it was going to oh. be the phenomenon that it was, but. Anyway, it, it, I forget what movie we were finishing up, and the bay doors were open, and the forklift was coming in with these giant mold sections, and I'm like, "What? What's going on?" And, and a buddy of mine goes, "You didn't hear? We're greenlit for JP3. We start in a week. We got a year." And I'm like, oh, "No way!" I'm like, "Really? We're, we're doing a we, really?" He's like, "Yep." So we started slow, and we started, you know, just running some of the old molds. I was in the foam latex department, so I was um, responsible for all the skins. Uh, that the dinosaurs made that the, that the dinosaurs had the foam latex skins so what was also really cool was this was everybody at the studio most everybody it was their third tour of duty for a dinosaur film it was my first but you saw the evolution or the um what they learned previously so for example the the t-rex the in the first two films was the head was completely made out of foam latex and when it was smashing into things the foam latex tears so for the spinosaur they took some very dense rubber and they made that for the snout so it was very abrasive resistance and didn't take near the beating or need near the repairs that the original t-rexes did so so little things like that i thought was kind of neat that you know they learned from the past and, and they improved upon it and then when there was talk about doing this pteranodon you know i had you know i had lobbied i'd been in a few creature suits uh, at that time by, by that time and i lobbied that look i'm, I'm kind of the right size um, I want to give this a shot. And I, I you know, didn't care if I was going to bleed out of my eyeballs. I was going to make <laughs> this work. And Chris Swift was one of the key artists on it. And he was very instrumental in making sure that, that it looked right. And we did a mock-up of me. There's pictures of it online somewhere with me wearing like a pteranodon head hat. And, yeah. and Stan comes over and goes, yeah, I think that'll work. And then that was the end of it. They <laughs> did a scan of me in the position. And Chris sculpted a little maquette of the pteranodon to try and hide the human form. And then it was uh, it was a go. Um John Grant played the Raptor. I was in the Tranodon suit and, and Stan hired a personal trainer and we would work out two or three times a week before the studio opened. Stan Winston studio had a little gym. It was one of the most beautiful little gyms ever made. It was designed by Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh. And we would go there in the morning and we would work out for like two hours. And then I would, you know, right before the work day started, I'd get my protein shake and then we'd go right into the phone room and we'd start the day. And we did that for months. And thank God we did, because uh, it was still a very, very grueling task to wear that thing. Oh, I can't even imagine. It just, it looks very uncomfortable, to say the least, based off the pictures. Uh, you're basically hunched over. You've got, like, long canes for arms yeah. or something. You've got, like, you're standing on, like, your toes. Be on my tiptoes, You've yeah. got a big pteranodon head on top yeah. of your head. So. I, I can't even imagine how any kind of performance was gotten out of this. So that is a, a big kudos to you guys for bringing that thing to life somehow. 
I mean, I gotta, I gotta say honestly, a lot of the performance was the external puppeteers. I mean, I'm, I'm just basically the meat puppet, but the head moving, the eyes, the mouth, that was all done by other guys. And those motors were so mm -hmm. strong. If they whipped the head to one side, it would literally throw me off balance. The, the, those motors were so, I mean, it, it was a, a pretty amazing piece of technology. Um, and, but yeah, it was, but still it was, it was grueling and just take after take after take. There were times where it was just like my, my lower back is going to blow out and I, I'm going to oh. collapse. I mean, it was, I mean, there was one time I was on the headset with John Rosengrant and he says, Hey man, when you, when you've hit the wall, just tell just say mirror. That was our code word. And I'll explain what that means. And to the point where I was just, I finally was like, John mirror, I'm going to, I'm going to die in here. So he called cut mm. when John and I were training, we would do, you know, we do upper body, we do lower body and lower body at the end of leg day, we would do wall sits against the mirror and we would have a little contest to see who could uh, stay in that position the longest. So it's like, you know, you put your back against the wall, you get in a seated position and John and I are very competitive. I could do about 10 pounds heavy. I mean, I was like 10 years younger than John. I did 10 pounds heavier weights on every exercise except that damn wall sit. John always <laughs> beat me by a solid minute. If I did four minutes, John would do five. If I did five minutes, John would do six. So our last day, I go up against the mirror and I said, I'm going to beat him. And I went for like nine minutes oh. and I literally collapsed on the ground. I'm like in agony. John did 10 minutes. Oh. Like, damn it. So I was never able to beat him at that one mirror sit, but that was our code word mirror. When you're going to die, just say mirror over the headset and I'm going to, I'll tell him to get you out. Yikes. I mean, look, after after saying all that, I I just have one question for you. Like, mm -hmm. how, how's your back doing? <laughs> you know what? I, I still have lingering little lower back issues because it was I used to have a very, very strong lower back. And that that uh, suit really pushed it to the limit. So it's it's OK. It just gets a little stiff now, you know, like 20 something years later. But it was it was pretty gnarly. Um being even scenes where I'm chasing them on the bridge, they had me on a cart. I, I even though I wasn't really, I was just kind of miming the walk, but I still had to stay bent over at the back to stay. And of course, when you're in a creature suit, when when they're telling you how to get in position, without fail, the most uncomfortable, torturous position is always the one that looks the best. So I'm bent forward, and it's it really just just again take after take after take. It just wears you down. So yeah, I've got my back gets my lower back gets a little stiff. I don't know if it's age, but it's it's. Uh, I'm sure that's a contributing factor. But it's, I, I, I'm my suit wearing days are pretty much over. I may have one more in me, but I think that's about all she wrote for me. So that was that something that when you went out there, you you know you started the job. Did you want to more focus on the creative point of it, designing these things, sculpting them, or did you actually want to get out there? And Life will not be contained. Life breaks free, expands to new territories, and crashes through barriers painfully, maybe even dangerously, but, uh, well, there it is. There it is. I'm, I'm simply saying that life, uh, finds a way. That'll do it for another episode of the Jurassic Park Podcast. We appreciate each and every one of you for listening to this episode and for sharing it around being kind to us online and sharing uh, in this love of Jurassic Park. We really, really appreciate it. And a huge thank you, of course, to Mark for joining me here today and next week. Um, and just talking about, you know, the love of film and getting started in that. Oh, 
I had such a great time chatting with Mark, so I can't wait for you to hear part two next week. It's going to be a a heck of a lot of fun, so please stick around for that episode. And uh, that's about it. That's all we have for you this week, so please stay safe out there. Be kind. Let's continue to fight for representation, change, and equality in the Jurassic franchise. But more importantly, outside of it, in the real world, let's continue to make the world a better place. I'm going to go ahead and hand things off to myself for the outro. Take it away. Saddle up. Let's get this movable feast underway. Continue the conversation with us on threads and Instagram. Watch our content on TikTok and YouTube. Find us on the web at JurassicParkPodcast.com. You'll find today's episode show notes, articles, contributor bios, and so much more. You can listen to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, our website, and wherever else podcasts are found. So please be sure to follow along and share with your friends, family, and fellow Jurassic fans. If you haven't already, please give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. We will read your Apple reviews at the end of most episodes, so be sure to spare no expense. Don't miss our Wednesday night live streams, toy hunts, reviews, in-depth bonus content, gameplay, event and theme park coverage on our YouTube channel. If you want to get a hold of us or participate in the Jurassic Mailbag, you can fill out the contact form on our website or send emails and MP3s to JurassicParkPod at gmail.com. Feel free to call our voicemail line at any time to leave us a message or just to say hi. That number is 732-825-7763. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, enjoy. Enjoy.